Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Algeria at the CHAN, the African Nations Championship, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we focus on the Chan here in Algeria with the hosts, the first team to qualify for the quarterfinals. Algeria is using it as an opportunity to convince the rest of the continent that they can stage the AFCON um, in 2025. Also, we take a look at the shortlist for the best FIFA Football Awards 2022, with three Moroccans nominated after finishing fourth at the World Cup in Qatar. So can any of them win an award against very strong opposition? And lots too on the English Premier League. Can anybody stop Arsenal? That's all coming up on the show. So hello from Oran. I'm in Algeria's second largest city in the northwest of the country by the Mediterranean Sea. The 2022 African Nations Championship, or the CHAN, is midway through the group stage. Uh, this is the tournament where countries can only use their home-based players who are playing in their own domestic leagues. Well, Algeria are the first team through to the quarterfinals. They won their first two matches 1-0, although many feel they do need to step up their performance a bit if they are to win the trophy. Morocco pulled out just before the competition as they were refused a direct flight to the country on their national airline by the hosts, with diplomatic ties between Algeria and Morocco having been severed back in 2021. That reduced it from 18 teams to 17 teams here. Well, I'm doing TV commentary for CAF TV here in Oran. Uh, there's a beautiful stadium here, very cold and windy as it is across the country right now. And the opening games on Monday here had a reasonable crowd. Often the CHAN and the AFCON have played with small crowds in matches where the host nation is not involved. But it's been very, very promising so far. Well, Planet Sport Football Africa's Olawashina Akaleji is also here. He's travelled to all four of the host cities to watch games in the opening round of group matches. Uh, I asked Shina about his impressions so far. Well, Steve, it's been amazing. Um, uh, I think this is my second chance. Um, the second one in North Africa. Um, the first one was in Morocco. And what I've seen here is standard of AFCON proper, not a chance tournament. With due respect to the chance tournament, I think um, the AFCON being the continent showpiece event tend to have all the facilities and everything. And that's what Algeria's done. Um, the airport, the stadium, the planes, the transportation, um, awareness, and uh, in terms of fans' awareness, in terms of media awareness, everything is here. Algeria is a footballing nation. And I'll understand why they, they're doing everything they're doing because they've not hosted a major event in terms of football in the last three decades. And um, what we've seen here is that everywhere you go, the fans are aware. And on the eve of this um, tournament, on the eve of the tournament, we heard CAF President Patrice Mosipe speaking at the presser where he was telling us that this is what he expects every African nation to prepare for them when they are bidding for tournament. And remember, Algeria are bidding for the 2025 AFCON. So they need to have everything spot on. They need to have everything in place. And I think what they have here so far is good enough for them to stage the tournament in 2025. Also, we have... The African legends here lighting up the tournament. We've seen um, Austin Okocha of Nigeria, Samoa Gian of Ghana, Karim Hagi of Tunisia, Tiaka Tiene of Ivory Coast, and Imanadebayo of Togo, of course. So it tells you that um, this is a tournament 
that everyone is warming up to and Algeria, they've absolutely delivered in terms of organization, in my opinion. Yes, a very impressive here in Oran. Uh, so the bigger goal is to host the 2025 Africa Cup of Nations then. And the cities of Constantine and Annaba have done really well with big attendances at games that you went to, Sheena. Oh, yes. Um, full house in Annaba and, of course, a full house in Constantine. I was really, really surprised because... I didn't expect to see that because, you know, we expect to see more crowd in Algiers, but the stadium in Anaba and Constantine were packed. Um, in Anaba, for instance, um, we, um, spoke to some of the locals, um, you know, Anaba in the northeastern parts as well as, um, Constantine in the northeastern parts. In Anaba, they have a team called Union Sportive Madinet Anaba. That's USM Anaba. And the fans there created a huge atmosphere. It was quite electric. It was beautiful. Um, we saw them and they were so proud. They said they needed to prove to the rest of the continent that um, Anaba should host the AFCON in 2025. I think the, the whole idea, the whole conversation around this um, chant is that Algeria is using it as an opportunity to convince the rest of the continent that they can stage the AFCON um, in 2025. But the crowd, the fans, the security... Um, it was, it was, it was brilliant and the atmosphere so was also beautiful. It shows that it doesn't matter whether Algeria is playing, the fans here will always come out. Yes, the crowds have been great. And, um, what do you think about the standard of play and whether some of these players here might get moves outside of their country? Well, in terms of the standard of play, um, I don't think I've been quite impressed yet. Um, I think the best game I've seen here is Mali and Angola. That was a cracking game. We saw everything, it was full of everything. Um, you know, Angola dominated the first half, Mali came back and you could see the quality of play. And some of the scouts that came to that game were quite impressed. Um, people saw Cameroon struggle to beat Congo. They weren't really that convinced. Um, but also the game, you know, Ivory Coast, you expect so much from them. You'd expect so much from other teams like Ghana and even uh, maybe Madagascar as well. But the, the performance hasn't really been much. Karim Agi made a very important and valid point. He said maybe CAF should encourage countries to bring in their youth players, their under-23s, and then maybe drag in two or three um, overage players, maybe players, older players for experience and all that, because no scout wants to take a 35-year-old or 30-year-old from the local scene in Africa to Europe. Um, that's not how it works. And that would also develop football on the continent, uh, and also it will also help the the leagues to see that young players will give you you know the energy tactical performance and you know energetic performance and displays that would impress scouts so for him he suggested that but overall we've seen scouts coming from turkey from france from um, south africa as well and it tells you that they're still interested in the chan performance will probably improve after the second games um, after this second round of games i think and i believe but in terms of what I've seen, I've not really been satisfied so far. Right, so we'll see if some players do get signed by clubs in Europe or maybe by clubs in South Africa or in North Africa. I was speaking there to Planet Sport Football Africa's Oloashina Okoleji, here with me at the Chan in Algeria, as this week's show comes to you from Oran in northwestern Algeria. 
Well, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to the FIFA Awards. As FIFA has revealed the candidates shortlisted for the Best FIFA Football Awards 2022. Well, there's more African interest than usual here, with Morocco having finished fourth at the World Cup in Qatar last month. The goalkeeper shortlist includes Morocco's Yassine Bonou, who made some spectacular saves in Qatar, and the coach shortlist has the Atlas Lions coach Walid Regragi, but he's up against the Argentina coach Lino Scaloni, who of course won the World Cup. But uh, well, Ida, you could make a case for Regragi to take this, couldn't you? Well, as you've said there, Steve, he is up against Scaloni, who, on top of winning the most coveted title in the game, he did it in a run of 42 out of 43 games unbeaten. That only loss came against Saudi Arabia. And look, I'm sure that while in the bigger picture, it doesn't matter. I mean, they won the World Cup, you know, but it's still a slight blemish in a run that in another world really could have been perfect. But would I love for Regragi to get it? Absolutely. Look, maybe it's my African sentiment attaching itself, (laughs) but... What he and the team did will forever remain untouched. And the caliber of competition they did it against, it speaks for itself. The Atlas Lions took down giants in Qatar, Steve, from Belgium to Spain and Portugal. They finished top of their group. Let's not forget that. And to think that Regragi was appointed with three months to the tournament... All the doubt that came with that. I mean, what a way to prove your naysayers wrong. We already talked extensively about his novel approach, if you will, to coaching. You know, not just about the tactics on the pitch, but prioritizing player welfare and mental health outside of it. We saw the impact of players once in exile, if you will, on team performance. So, I mean, to call Regragi a pioneer, not just in his approach, Steve, but even in his achievements, I don't think would be exaggerating. The first African and Arab manager to reach the semifinals of a World Cup. The first African manager nominated for a FIFA Best Coach Award. And despite finishing fourth, The International Federation of Football History and Statistics, and I know some do question its relevance, but it did rank Regragi as the third best men's national coach in the world, though it should be noted that it is a totally separate entity from FIFA. And while all the division continued on whether Morocco was affiliated more with the Africans or the Arabs, For him to emphasize that they were just as much African as they were Arab really did hit the spot for so many in the continent. This year's awards will be based on performances from August 2021 through to December 2022. And to me, it's pretty obvious that Scaloni will get it on February 27th. And it would be well-deserved, don't get me wrong, but... Regragi won hearts across the world. And I'm actually more curious, Steve, to see who will emerge second and third. Yes, then the best FIFA men's player shortlist includes Morocco's Atraf Hakimi, Senegal's Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah of Egypt. Uh, But they have a lot to do up against World Cup winner Lionel Messi and runner-up Kylian Mbappe. 
Well, I think everyone in this list will have a lot to do up against Messi Steve. <laughs> you know, it really was his World Cup and it really will be his FIFA best and later his Ballon d'Or. Mane, well, he did have an amazing tournament and an amazing moment indeed, lifting the AFCON title. But not being at the World Cup was definitely a dent. So I will focus on 24-year-old Ashraf Hakimi. Who can forget that Penenka he scored so coolly against Spain to knock them out? Ironically enough, the same Spain that courted him at an early age, but instead he chose to represent Morocco. Steve, I think this is another one whose winner is pretty obvious and uh, very well deserved, Leo Messi. I mean, even Mbappe can't catch him. So I will choose to instead focus on a beautiful moment between Mbappe and Hakimi, who are known to be quite close, both of them on this list, as we have mentioned. And even when France bundled Morocco out in the semis, it was still beautiful to see Mbappe, who preferred to sit in the tunnel and catch up with his friend Hakimi, despite wild celebrations going on for France. So Messi might take this one, Steve, but the two PSG players definitely have a bright, bright future. Yes, well, thanks, Ida. And a public voting for the FIFA Awards is open until the 3rd of next month. And early in February, FIFA will announce the three finalists in each of the seven categories. Else, if you have thoughts on this on social media this week, who would you give the FIFA Coach of the Year award to? Uh, so FIFA has revealed the candidates for the Best FIFA Football Awards 2022, with more African interest than usual, uh, Morocco having come fourth at the World Cup. So on the goalkeeper shortlist is Morocco's Yassine Bonou, and the coach shortlist has the Atlas Lions coach Walid Regragui, although he's up against uh, the World Cup winning coach Lino Scaloni of Argentina. Uh, but of course, Regragui did it with Morocco with uh, uh, much uh, scarcer resources than uh, Argentina. So who would you give the Coach of the Year award to? You can post a comment on our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Who would you give the FIFA Coach of the Year award to? Well, in other news, very concerning to hear that former Zambia and Brighton midfielder Enoch Mwepu was taken to hospital in Zambia last weekend after falling ill. A 25-year-old Mwepu was forced to retire from football in October because of a hereditary heart condition. Uh, he's now the new coach at Brighton's academy for the under-9s. But uh, back home in Zambia, he suffered a suspected heart attack last Sunday while driving and was seen to fall after parking his car and then went to hospital for checks. So really wishing uh, Enoch Mwepu a speedy and uh, complete recovery there, hoping to get back to his duties at the Brighton Academy. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And still to come, uh, Stuart on the English Premier League. Uh, can anybody stop Arsenal there? You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA. And you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download the app, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. 
Well, let's go to social media now. And last week we asked, who do you think will be the English Premier League champions? As they get to the halfway stage, Arsenal with a clear lead. So we asked, do you think that lead is big enough? Who do you think will come out the champions and why? Well, we had a huge response on this and differing views are mostly divided between Arsenal and Man City and with a considerable number of Man United fans feeling this could be their season. Let's start in the Gambia with Usainu, who says right now Arsenal are in good shape. I don't see them going down any time soon, so people should get used to seeing them up there, says Usainu. Uh, Stanson is an Arsenal fan in Sierra Leone. He says certainly it's not a big enough gap to get over the line, but I think we will take it if the citizens' inconsistency continues and if we stay injury-free, says Stanson. Tanaka Zotize is in Zimbabwe. Tanaka says the gap between Arsenal and Man City will stretch to two digits by March. Uh, Joseph Prince Songbedinio in Ghana says, I strongly believe Manchester City will do it again. The end justifies the means, says Joseph. Uh, Julius and Jane Mugo in Kenya says, either Man United or Man City, but not Arsenal. Mustafa Fabure is in the Gambia. Mustafa says Man United will win the Premier League this year because they're the ones showing the signs of winning it. Alhaji Sise, also in the Gambia, says, Yes, Manchester United, because we are winning all of our games. It's Kazi in the UK looks to this weekend's big game, saying if United can defeat Arsenal and continue their winning form, the league is ours. United for life, says It's, and more on that game shortly. Then Philemon Magakwe is in South Africa. Uh, Philemon says the league is won in May. But my heart tells me the Gunners might pull a rabbit out of the hat. However, there is still a lot of football to be played. And finally, on the same lines, Oscar Ewurum says, It is still a marathon and not a sprint. Only time and hard work will tell. Yes, indeed. We'll look forward to seeing how it all pans out. And thanks so much for all of those views. And always great to hear from you. Well, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to our European football expert, Stuart Weir, in the UK. And uh, interesting views there, Stuart, uh, from listeners. And uh, Arsenal have this clear lead at the halfway stage, so can anyone stop them? Mikel Arteta has recruited a young and exciting team and given them the confidence to go out and play. During the World Cup, many English fans got really frustrated to see Harry Maguire and John Stones passing the ball back and forward in front of their own penalty area. Arsenal are the complete opposite. They get the ball and they run at defenders. Bukayo Saka, born in London, of Nigerian parents, just 21, but he's in the form of his life. And when Arsenal lost Gabriel Jesus to injury in the World Cup, they did seem to be a striker light. But Eddie Nketiah, born in London of Ghanaian parents, has come into the team and scored four goals in the last six games. Thomas Partey, remember he struggled a bit, the Ghanaian, when he first came to Arsenal, only starting with half the games. But this season he's played 15 of 18 league games and is a key player in midfield. And interestingly, he and Granit Xhaka are each 29 the only two regular Arsenal players who are over 25. I mean, you could say that if Manchester City and Liverpool, say, were, say, just a point or two behind Arsenal, you would worry. 
as Liverpool and City have that experience of what it takes to win the championship, which of course Arsenal are lacking. But it's very much Arsenal's to lose, I would say. One negative for Arsenal, they thought they'd signed Mikhailo Mudrik for $100 million from Shakhtar Donetsk. But at the last minute, the 22-year-old Ukrainian decided to sign for Chelsea instead. But it is a massive help to Arsenal that none of their biggest rivals are really doing well at the moment. I mean, Manchester City are second, and City lost to Southampton in the League Cup, and then to Manchester United on Saturday. The first time for three years that City have lost consecutive games. Arsenal, interestingly, have still to play Manchester City home and away, and those six points could have a massive impact on the league title. Then we might have said Chelsea and Liverpool, but those two clubs are currently ninth and tenth in the league table, a staggering 19 points behind Arsenal, and frankly they're struggling to achieve a top-four finish and Champions League qualification, let alone compete for the title. Chelsea beat Crystal Palace 1-0 on Sunday, but amazingly that was only their second win in 10 league games, stretching back to October. And during that period, they'd been knocked out of the League Cup and the FA Cup. I mean, I said last week that losing an FA Cup tie away to Manchester City was no shame. But losing at 4-0 and being entirely outclassed was embarrassing. Graham Potter has only been the Chelsea manager since September. He was a surprising choice. He'd done well at Brighton, but he'd only managed in the Premier League for three seasons and not played at that level. So moving to Chelsea was always going to be a massive step up. Chelsea, of course, as a club, are also in transition with the new American ownership after the Abramovich era ended. But the timing of the replacement of Thomas Tuchel with Graham Potter was very strange. With Tuchel, last August-September, being allowed to sign Raheem Sterling, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Kaladu Koulibaly and Mark Cucurella. That was in the summer transfer window. But then he was fired, leaving Potter with a group of expensive new signings that he may or may not have wanted. And Mudrick takes Chelsea's spending this season to a staggering $500 million this season. Potter signed John Felix, who had looked so good for Portugal in the World Cup. And he played his first game last week against Fulham. He was doing well until he made a two-footed studs-up tackle, got a red card, leaving the ten men of Chelsea to lose to Fulham and himself suspended. Potter has his work cut out. As I said, he's a good but relatively inexperienced manager with a massive squad of players. 42, I think, in the first-team squad. But that only complicates selection. Potter finds himself with four months to make an impact on the Champions League, uh, the knockout stages, and also to try to get Chelsea up the table. It won't be easy. But I think any talk of Chelsea catching Arsenal... Is a fairy tale. Yes, tough times for Chelsea, and we've got a huge test for Arsenal this Sunday as they host Manchester United. Yes, Steve, the fixtures computer just keeps throwing up these fascinating games. Arsenal, top of the league, at home to, you might say, the form team, Manchester United, on Sunday. 
and of course United, the only team to beat Arsenal in the league this season. Manchester United looked excellent in the Manchester derby. When City put six past United in October, City just seemed able to pass through the uh, United midfield at will. But on Saturday, there was no doubt that it was United, and particularly the Brazilian pairing of Fred and Casemiro, who were controlling midfield. Seven times, Erling Haaland had to come back into his own half to collect the ball, because he was getting no service through midfield. United's back four looked really solid, with remarkably Eric Ten Hag selecting normal left-back Luke Shaw at centre-back, leaving World Cup winner Martinez and club captain Harry Maguire on the bench. But it worked. Now, Arsenal's fast young attackers against Manchester United's experience and solid defence and two quite combative midfields facing each other, it will be a fascinating game. And it really will be a test of whether Arsenal are as good as they appear to be. I I can't wait for that game, Steve. Yes, that should be a fascinating game. And uh, going back to last weekend, Stuart, something football fans all around the world have been discussing with uh, strong opinions. Um, There was real controversy over Bruno Fernandes' goal for Manchester United against Man City. Uh, Many felt it should have been ruled out for offside. Um, What's your view? Let me just describe what happened in, in case there's somebody in the planet who didn't see it. Marcus Rashford was in an offside position when a teammate hit a pass in front of him. Rashford chased it, but did not touch the ball, letting it run to Fernandes, who put it in the net. The assistant referee flagged for offside. The referee and his assistant consulted, and the goal was awarded, and VAR did not intervene. City surrounded the referee, protesting that Rashford had distracted and possibly impeded the defenders. But as the law stands, it was the correct decision. Rashford did not touch the ball and did not interfere with the defender, clearly, so therefore was judged to be in an offside position, but not active or not interfering with play, as we used to say. Reaction among ex-players has been divided, with a few supporting the officials, but many saying that a player running towards the ball in a goal-scoring position was certainly distracting defenders. And we understand that the International Football Association Board, which is responsible for the laws, is meeting this month and has been asked to clarify that situation. Actually, Steve, there was another fascinating incident for those of you who love the laws of the game and uh, required the officials to be on their toes. Fulham were awarded a penalty away to Newcastle. Mitrovic took the penalty and slipped as he was about to kick the ball, but still put it in the net. But there were immediately protests from the Newcastle goalkeeper Nick Pope that Mitrovic, as he slipped, had kicked the ball with his right foot against his left foot. And of course, a penalty taker is only allowed to strike the ball once. That one was disallowed. Yes, that was an interesting one. And uh, Stuart, down at the bottom of the table, things are really tight there. Well, Southampton, under new manager Nathan Jones, have had a great week. After losing seven league games in a row, last week they recorded three victories in three different competitions. Winning in the FA Cup, the League Cup, that was a quarter-final when they beat Manchester City. 
and then a league win away to Everton. Saints are still bottom of the league, but only on goal difference. And things are looking a lot brighter. Incidentally, it was uh, Musa Dinepo from Mali who scored one of the goals against Manchester City. As I say, Southampton gained an away win at Everton. But Everton are equal in points with Southampton and in terrible trouble. They have picked up just two points in the last seven league games, dropping from 12th to 19th. And to make matters worse, on police advice, neither the chairman nor the CEO attended last week's game because of threats. There is deep fan unrest at seeing a club with such a great past looking as if it's heading for relegation. I remember saying at the time that Frank Lampard, great player that he was, was an inexperienced manager and he is now in a dogfight where perhaps he's not the most suitable person. And just above in the third of the relegation places, West Ham are equally in trouble. In October, they were 10th, but one point in the last seven games has seen them drop to 18th. David Moyes is under extreme pressure. West Ham won in the FA Cup and they've qualified for the knockout stage of the Europa League, but they need to get some league points if David Moyes is to survive and the club is to retain its Premier League status. And clubs like Wolves, Bournemouth, Leeds are not out of the relegation fight either. Yes, they're really close in that relegation battle. Well, thanks a lot, Stuart, and that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers, at the African Nations Championship in Algeria, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening, and Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.